it please the podcast. Good day, listeners, and welcome to On Trial. I'm your host, Christopher DiGennaro, a commercial litigation lawyer with a focus on trial practice at Foley and Lardner in the firm's New York office. For this episode of the On Trial podcast, we sit down with Mike Tator, a seasoned trial lawyer and partner at Foley in the firm's Boston office. Mike is a member of the Government Enforcement Defense and Investigation Practice and has a broad litigation practice with a particular focus on healthcare litigation and False Claims Act defense. Earlier in his career, Mike served as chair of Foley's National Litigation Department, as well as chair of the firm's Business to Litigation and Dispute Resolution Practice Group. And before Foley, Mike served as an assistant U.S. attorney in Boston. During our conversation, Mike echoed prior guests on the importance of the opening, but also discussed closing argument and its special importance for the defense. He also offered great insight into cross-exam and objections and provided his view on the importance of being resilient at trial, not just bobbing and weaving punches, but throwing your own. And of course, Mike shared some of his most memorable trial experiences, including another dramatic in-court witness identification and an aha moment from an organized crime jury trial. Please enjoy the podcast, and I'll be back with you for summation. Mike, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Glad to be here. And it's a special pleasure to have you on the podcast because I know you have such tremendous and varied trial experience, both as a federal prosecutor and as a firm lawyer, including at Foley. And I want to talk to you about your experiences in those different roles. But I'd like to just get right into it and ask you your view on the most important part of a trial. So I think the kind of standard line is that the most important part of a trial is the opening. And I I can't disagree with that, especially for the party with the burden of proof, the party that's opening, because it's a real opportunity to set the stage for the jury. Um, I believe pretty strongly that that trials are stories and setting the story so that the jury can or judge can take the facts and place them in within the confines of that story, I think is critically important. So I think for the party going first, the opening really is the most important part of the trial. But I think the closing is a very, very close second. And frequently with the defense side, I think the closing can be more important than the opening. And that's because there is an opportunity once you've put the skeleton on the story to begin to fit the pieces that came in during the trial. And some of them may be a mystery to the jury, but now is an opportunity to help the jury play detective along with you and come to the same conclusions that you want them to, and ideally come to those conclusions just a half second before you tell them so that they feel like they're playing along as detective and they've figured it all out. So I think in the certain cases, and especially in long cases where the opening may well have been forgotten, the closing really can be the most important part of the trial so that the, that the story is ultimately told and the facts come in the way that, the, that you want the jury to have them. And so how do you view putting your closing together and what do you do 
in delivering your closing so that the jury feels like they are detectives in the case right along with you, you know, solving the problem or arriving at the correct answer together with you? So I think that um, as kind of a bit of background, um, I think it's critical during, and this is especially true for a long and complicated trial, there are going to be many opportunities to examine witnesses and especially adverse witnesses where uh, the famous nostrum, don't ask the last question, um, really comes into play. And by that, I mean, there's there's a tendency, I think, especially among inexperienced lawyers, to ask that very last question of the cross-examined witness, the one that ultimately allows him or her to completely squirrel out of everything that they have just said as you've walked them through fact after fact after fact. And instead, what we do as trial lawyers is to try to develop those nuggets, which you've thought about well before the trial and certainly in connection with your opening, those nuggets that you're going to need to get from that witness that may not necessarily be obvious to the jury as important. And the idea of the closing is to bring those pieces together, one after another after another. Clearly, you've tried to tell a story. You've tried to lay out a a consistent and coherent tale. But there are going to be things that you really need to put together in pieces from multiple witnesses that don't really come together until the closing. And that's what you're thinking about. Which witness is going to get you what piece of the story? And then how in the closing are you going to take that all together, 5, 10, 15 witnesses, bits and pieces of information, and put it together in a way that, like Agatha Christie used to do in in her novels, you read that last chapter and golly gee, then that second chapter there was this, and in the fourth chapter there was that, and then the eighth chapter there was this. And what do you know? It all makes sense now that you've put it together. If you can do that and you can see it in the jury's faces, uh, then you know you're going to win because they like being with you in telling that or in coming up with that detective story. I think that's right, and I love the way you put it. I think that younger or or perhaps less experienced trial lawyers tend to get up on closing and just sort of rehash all of the testimony that every witness provided. And of course, the jury was there for all of that testimony. They were in the room and hopefully they were listening. So you're right. Putting putting all of the, the sort of different testimonial pieces together to tell your story in a compelling way, I think, is really what you aim for in the closing. And I think that it's important to remember that, especially in a long trial, the the pieces of the story don't come together, don't come in necessarily in a sequential way. Um, obviously, if you can, you want the story to be chronological or, or thematic, but especially on the defense side where you're cross-examining witnesses that the prosecution or the plaintiff has put on, you don't have any choice about the sequence of events that you're going to be presenting to the jury. So you have to take the pieces one by one by one, even if they're out of chronological order, and get them ready. That's where the closing becomes so important, because finally at this point, all those separate pieces, 
what appear may even be disjointed pieces that came in from witness after witness, that's where you can reshape them, reorder them, and then put them into that coherent story. And that's, again, why I think in some ways the closing may be more important than the opening because, again, you're not going to have that choice. You're not going to be able to define the, the sequence of events if you're coming in on the defense. Um, this is especially true in a criminal case when you, frankly, don't put on very many witnesses at all. It's all going to come in through uh, your cross-examination of the prosecution, prosecution's witnesses. And if that's so, you don't get to choose at all what order they're going to come in. It's at the closing that you get to put the order back in place in a story that is coherent and compelling for your client. And I think that's one of the reasons that I like closing argument best. You are responsive to what comes out at trial. Um, the opening statement, of course, is something that is canned. I mean, you you have it prepared, you know, presumably well in advance. You've rehearsed it many times. It's not reactive. But, of course, you're not making up your closing as you go along during the trial and deciding, oh, ah, this is a, this is a theme that I should emphasize to the jury. You have an idea when you set out to put on a case or or uh, defend a case what your themes are and what ultimately you'll what story you'll ultimately tell, including through closing. So how do you sort of put those themes together? Is that something you consciously do beforehand with a view toward weaving them in throughout the trial and at closing? Absolutely. What I uh, was trained to do and what I hopefully train others to do is to have a comprehensive trial plan for how the whole case is going to come together Who's going to get you the information that you, the evidence that you need? What are the evidentiary issues that you're going to face, good and bad? And how are you going to convince the judge that these pieces of evidence either should be excluded or come in? Um, obviously, you've got an overall theme and story, but the key to the trial plan is to think about which witness, which document is going to give you the nugget of the story that is going to fill in all of that theme, because you're only going to get one shot at getting those nuggets. So well before the case ever starts, you've got a trial plan with your evidence, both uh, both by uh, testimony and by documents and by video, all of which is supposed to kind of develop the theme as a whole. But I like your point about being reactive because the fact is it's not going to come in that way. So you have to be nimble and ready to figure out if I don't get it from witness A, I'm going to be able to get it from witness B or C or a document that's going to come in. I need to make sure that my key pieces of evidence are available regardless of what happens. I think that's right. And by the way, uh, being nimble, as you know, one of the things I like to address with my guests is – what, in their view, uh, is the most important skill of a trial lawyer. And Lisa Noller, who you know well and, and work with at the firm, said that being nimble, she thought, was the most important skill of a trial lawyer. And I don't think we can leave this here. I, I think we have to now talk to you about what you know you think is the most important skill of a trial lawyer. Well, I would never disagree with my partner, Lisa Noller, who is a fantastic trial lawyer. Um, I think what I would, I guess, supplement that with, and maybe it's another another skill, is that you have to be resilient. Ultimately, you really need to be resilient. And that's important because I think what's often forgotten about a trial, certainly the clients don't think of it this way, is that it's many ways a roller coaster. 
I often say to clients, if we're on the defense side, so the plaintiff is presumably putting on evidence which is designed to kick the defense in the teeth and make it impossible for the defense to come back and explain their side of the story. And no matter how good your witnesses are and no matter how good the day goes, there's going to be days in a trial that don't go well and don't go well in ways that you didn't think about. It's just not it's it's a it's an organic process. So you need to be ready to take the punches and then give them back. Come up with your own punches. And if you can't do that, you're going to find yourself, especially on the defense side, you're going to find yourself sliding down. Even on the plaintiff side, what's going to happen is you're going to put on the plaintiff or you're going to put on a key witness and they're going to get roughed up by the defense or a new idea is going to develop that you hadn't thought of. And that's where it's so important to be resilient. You got to go back to your office. You got to stay up late. You got to figure out how am I going to deal with that uh, issue that really seemed to resonate with the jury. We better do something to get the jury back in line. And um, that ability to take the punches essentially deal with them, address them, and come back with punches of your own, I think is perhaps the most important thing, in my view, of being a trial lawyer. You know, that's really interesting. And I think that having to be nimble and having to be resilient is one of the things I like most about trying cases generally, because we're not just actors, right? Putting on a case according to a script that we've drafted and heavily edited in advance of trial. You know, we're in the thick of it, trying to get the best outcome for our client. And we we have to be responsive to the evidence. I think you're right. I think it's it's very interesting to hear you talk about it. And as you do talk about it, I realize, huh, I think this is part of what makes trying cases so fun. I completely agree. I mean, in some ways, it's like a sporting event. It's like any kind of competition in which you are going up against other people. And there are, as you pointed out, unforeseen circumstances or even foreseen circumstances that you just don't know how they're going to develop, whether the judge is going to decide that the evidence that you think is so important is or is not going to come in is just something you can't necessarily know. Yes, you can file motions in limine to try to get a judge to make a ruling about particular evidence. But as we all know, as trial lawyers, it is just so common among judges to simply say, well, that's that's a good argument. I've heard it. Um, why don't we take that up in trial when that comes right. in? I'll you revisit know, when, it. when it's presented, I'll revisit that question. And so now here you are. You don't know what the judge is going to do, and you don't know whether that piece of evidence is going to come in the way you think it should or is going to be excluded the way you think it should. And you're going to be better. You better be prepared to deal with it as it happens. So, Mike, I want to get back to this comprehensive trial plan you, t- you talked about earlier. And I want to ask you in particular how your themes sort of fit into this plan. When you and I were speaking a few weeks ago, we discussed utilizing themes throughout the trial to the extent possible, working in alliteration, a couple of words, you know, particularly when you're trying a case in front of a jury, you know, we I think we agreed that it was important to to sort of use those kinds of themes. How do how do themes more generally fit into your trial plan? Well, as I said earlier, I think the the key point about a trial is that it is a story. And you've got to be thinking about the story from sort of start to finish in the way that we would tell any story, beginning, middle, end. What are the moments of climax? What are the moments of uh, that need to be resolved? You know, what's the denouement? Where, where is it going to happen? And that all really needs to be 
and the way I do it is, is, is frankly, uh, as a paragraph at the beginning of the trial plan. Here's the story. Here how this is what we're, this is what the whole thing is about. And in that trial plan, from there, you begin to build out the themes that you're going to try to get for those witnesses. I think for a jury, there are aspects that are just different from a judge or even an arbitrator. It's so critical, I think, in a jury trial to take the steps necessary to um, attack the credibility of the important witnesses that the plaintiff or the prosecution or the other side is going to have. We talked about, I know in our prior conversation, about the prior inconsistent statement, about the fact that a witness has changed his or her story over the course of time. As lawyers, we know that that happens a lot because memory is not a perfect thing. But I think juries are particularly looking for who should I be listening to? Who should I trust? Whose story seems realistic? And in in that respect, showing the jury that a particular witness used to say something and has now said something else has an immensely powerful effect. It doesn't actually require a whole lot of inconsistency to really undercut the credibility of a witness before a jury. I've seen in jury exercises, I've talked to jurors afterwards, that some minor fact that you've shown them changing, which embellishes or in some ways sharpens their story, can be enough to cause the jury to say, I don't believe this person about anything, even though it was a really relatively minor point. Judges have seen it all they were lawyers themselves. And so the fact that witnesses' testimony cannot necessarily be exactly the same as the last time they gave it in a deposition or in the grand jury have much less of an effect. So in thinking through those themes, I think we're always trying to undercut the credibility of the other side's witnesses. But it's particularly important in a jury trial where, again, the jury is going to ultimately decide which of those witnesses are the ones I'm going to rely upon in coming to uh, a conclusion about the story. And when you get to your closing argument, of course, then you have to sort of pull the themes out of the evidence that's been introduced and weave it together in a compelling way. And, and and that's, again, where pointing out the inconsistencies of the witness are going to be particularly important in a jury trial. I'm not saying they're unimportant in a bench trial, but again, the judges have seen hundreds of cases. They've seen witnesses try hard to bring their memory back. It's, it's difficult. In, a, in the closing for a jury trial, there is that piece of the story in which you're basically saying, well, Witness B and witness D on whom the uh, prosecution relied very heavily. Let's talk about their testimony. Let's see why their testimony should be disregarded and their pieces of the story should be put to the side in favor of the pieces of the story that we want to have emphasized. In a criminal case, of course, what that can be done, what you could be doing with that is saying, well, Witness B and witness D, they obviously changed their story between their grand jury testimony or within or when they spoke to the FBI or spoke to somebody else. And doesn't that create reasonable doubt for the witness for the for the uh, for the defendant? How can you trust the prosecution's story 
when witness B and witness D changed their story from a year ago when they were supposedly more fresh and they were giving their tale for the first time, not with all the preparation of the prosecution. That's part of the story that you're telling to the to the jury in a criminal trial. They can't trust the witnesses that the prosecution has put on. Yeah, I think that's right. As you were going through that, it struck me that it's not always the case that the prosecution or the plaintiff will argue A and the defense will argue not A. Sometimes the prosecution or plaintiff's account of the case um, could be A, but the defense is something like B or C. And so, you know, I, I this is, I mean, I think it's germane to the closing, but it's also about trial strategy more generally. When you're in that sort of defense role and your story is just sort of a totally different framing of the facts. It's not necessarily, oh, well, not A. In fact, it's altogether B or C. Do you endeavor to try to undercut and undermine the theory that the prosecution or plaintiff is advancing? Or are you focused on your story or is it a combination of both? It has to be a combination of both for sure. And I think we can distinguish between criminal trials, especially what you might want to call blue collar and white collar cases. In the white collar case, it's frequently a whole nother tale or it's it's a tale about, you know, demonstrating that um, there wasn't any ill intent. It's it, it wasn't a, a criminal act. It was a foolish act or it was a mistake um, that can be a whole different kind of story putting in different kinds of evidence that show that everybody was acting in good faith and they just they just made a mistake um, or it was just a foolish thing to do rather than any kind of criminal act. That's as opposed to the sort of reactive crime, the blue collar case, where really the argument is almost overwhelmingly that the government hasn't met its burden, that there's doubts that have been created, that the, that, that the jury cannot come to a conclusion beyond a reasonable doubt. In a civil case, it's more common, I think, to have a whole different story. I, I think of a trial that I had uh, a number of years ago. It was a breach of fiduciary duty case, at least as pled by the plaintiff. And the plaintiff brought in experts and brought in witnesses to try to demonstrate that our client had breached his fiduciary duty to his limited partners. We took a completely different tack and said that the monies that were ultimately played to the uh, paid to our client was in the form of an executive compensation arrangement. It had nothing to do with his fiduciary duty. It was part of the salary that he and others had earned. And we got an expert on ex executive compensation to talk about executive compensation. I think it ultimately the plaintiff was not at all thinking about that. And it really turned the trial into a different kind of case in which fiduciary responsibilities really weren't even relevant. And that was a bench trial. We ultimately prevailed in that case. But it was really because we told a different story than the plaintiff had. Yeah, um, that's so interesting. And, you know, to the extent practicable, I think it's it's desirable to, to tell your own story and not just be responsive to the other story, because then you're not in control of, of the dialogue. You're you're in a, a ref, reflexive role. And I will say in that case, one thing I really learned about that was um, taking advantage of 
of subject matter experts in the subject that we're actually talking about. I think litigators, trial lawyers like to think it's kind of a standard thing that you can give me any kind of a case. You can, I'm a barrister to use the English example, and I will take whatever subject it is and I'll turn it into a story for the trial. And I hope that that's true, that that's what we can do, but we, uh, impoverish ourselves if we don't take advantage of, for example, colleagues in a, in a corporate case who actually do these things day in, day out. That's actually what happened in that case. I went to one of my partners, I, who's an M&A specialist. I talked about the case and, and the challenges that we have. And she, she was the one who said, well, gee, that, that sounds an awful lot like executive compensation issues rather than a fiduciary one. And we took that theme and then built it out and really transformed the case from what it appeared in the complaint to be to what it ultimately was tried to be. So, by the way, I, I totally agree with what you said. <laughs> and I, too, think that, oh, give me any, you know, sort of complex problem in any area of law. And, and in, in just a short period of time, I'll be a relative expert. And, and not only that, I'll be able to teach it to a judge or jury and, you know, at, at an elementary school level so that they can easily understand and digest it. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of being a good trial lawyer. When you bring experts into the mix, it seems there's a tension there because, um, you know, surely, depending upon the subject matter, it's difficult for a jury to connect and understand what an expert is offering or talking about. So how do you sort of bridge the gap between the expert and the jury as the trial lawyer. And, and what I guess I would say in the in the first instance, before you even get to the expert, is steeping yourself in using whatever resources you have. And that's frequently your colleagues, your partners, uh, people who have been in that uh, in industry, because there is this level of what I like to call interstitial knowledge, the, the knowledge that isn't, in fact, imparted directly in a book or in a treatise. It's the gestalt, the whole of that industry, the whole of that well, that environment, which because they're swimming because they're swimming in it, this is the sort of thing they do every day. Having the dialogue with those people, even before you ever talk to your expert, is incredibly useful because it gives you kind of a framework for how things are understood within that business. You can then go to the expert because sometimes the experts are just a little bit too steeped in what it is that they do so that they're not going to be able to tell the jury in a way that's going to be meaningful. So it's our job to kind of translate or help translate that expert information through the environment that hopefully you're learning from other subject matter experts, then down into what it is that we do, which is to distill it, explain it, give it to the jury in manageable chunks so that they get the whole picture of it. Uh, I, I think those three pieces are really critical in telling a, especially again, in a complicated area, um, a well-formed story. Well, perhaps we could spend an entire podcast episode on how <laughs> to take, you know, these sort of complex chunks and synthesize and distill them down into bite-sized, understandable pieces for a jury. But do you have any particular strategies or things that you keep in mind in, in doing that? Well, I think that I always have in mind when I've got an expert, and I've had some really, really good experts, but is how 
it's being presented to the jury. And that's especially true if after three or four or five years you're getting ready for the trial. We like to feel like we're, you know, right there at the elbow of the expert. We understand. We begin to use the lingo that they use to show that we know it. And we have to be careful and you use that elementary school analogy. It's not an insult to the jury to say, we're going to present it to you kind of in the sixth grade mode or the eighth grade mode. And that's not because we think the jury isn't smart. They are smart. But they're sitting there in a, in a room, and for the very first time, they're being presented with a whole bunch of stuff that presumably they have no knowledge of at all. And I try to think throughout the case – what, when am I doing that? When am I, when am I kind of moving into the expert's role? When am I beginning to use the jargon? How do I make sure that I get out of that role again? How do I translate rather than become part of the, of the environment and really be that translator, that person who can interpret what's going on in this complicated business to people who have actually never heard anything about it before? Yeah, that's so interesting. And I want to focus on one thing that you said, which which really struck me. I mean, the jury is sitting in this room and hearing everything for the first time in isolation, whereas the trial lawyer has been grappling with the facts and issues for years. I think that one of the kind of fundamental points, and we could we could go off in a variety of directions on this, is that we always need to remember that a courtroom, a courtroom is a is a really, uh, uh, in a sense, a sterile space. The information that is going to come in to decide the case is the information that we as the lawyers and as the judge decide is going to come in for the jury to decide. Now, they bring their common sense. They bring their knowledge of the world. But I think sometimes you hear people say, I want to go to trial because I need the truth to come out. And I wish that it were true, that the truth always comes out in a trial. But I think as lawyers, we recognize that, in fact, it's going to be a truth that is based on a limited category of information. We are, in fact, the rules of evidence and the whole process are designed to push out everything that is supposedly extraneous or prejudicial or unfair and instead focuses entirely on pieces of evidence that are directly material to the case. And that means it's, in a sense, a, a, a sterile box. It's the box of information that is being allowed the, for the jury to hear. And I know, for example, we've talked before about the importance of objections. And I really feel that, you know, there's, there's a, that, that object, objections and being able to frame your objections is just one of the critical skills of a trial lawyer. And it's a skill that I think, unfortunately, we don't see enough of anymore because you have to feel confident in that courtroom to stand up in front of a jury or obviously in front of a judge and tell the judge, no, this evidence, this piece of information doesn't belong in this room. It's not appropriate for it to be in this room. But that's such a critical skill because if you can keep that information out of that room, well, that's now the jury doesn't have it. That's not going to be a piece of how the jury makes its ultimate determination. And it's, it's daunting and frightening, I think, the first, second, third, twelfth time you do it to stand up and with confidence tell the judge, 
I object to this. This does not belong in the box in the system of the jury trial that we're talking about here. But it's so important because information that shouldn't be in that box should be excluded. And if you can do it, you can take that story that the other side is trying to tell and punch holes in it so that they can't make a coherent story anymore. So I think that's really a critical thing. And again, I try to think about as we're going into trial, what is that, that the scope of the information that's actually going to get to the jury as part of the story? And how do I keep my story from, why do I, how do I keep my story coming in? And how do I make sure that their story never makes it into the room? So I, I think you answered my next question, which was going to be, how do you decide what to object to? And it sounds like, because of course, lots of things are objectionable throughout the course of a trial, but you don't want to sort of be that annoying lawyer that stands and objects to everything that's arguably objectionable. I think based on the answer you just gave, you object to item, evidentiary items coming in that you think would be critical to the other side's story. Is that, that's is absolutely that right. That, that's absolutely right. And, and again, that has to be part of your trial plan. I mean, again, this is where sure. resilience and nimbleness come in. There may be things that you hadn't thought of or they didn't lay the appropriate foundation for. And now I have an opportunity to object to something I never thought I was going to be able to object to. I've had circumstances where big reports, big, um, you know, well, time has been spent, hours have been spent, days have been spent putting together uh, some kind of an exhibit, some kind of a chalk, some kind of an expert report, which is going to be the device by which the other side is going to tell its story. But they failed to lay the appropriate foundation. And I can think of two or three or four times within my experience, both as a junior lawyer and then as lead trial counsel, in which that lack of foundation allowed us to make an objection to show that the this schema that they had was not well founded. And you only have to do a few places. It could be a huge stack of paper, but if you can come up with 10 or 15 places, maybe even less, where it's not reliable. Then you move to exclude it, that whole framework is excluded, and suddenly the damage is part of the case, or the, the, the way that you were going to get from the beginning to the end has just been removed from the box, which is that jury uh, trial. And it's devastating. It can be absolutely devastating. They've relied very heavily on the, how they're going to tell their story through that schema, and it's gone. And um, as I say, I think I think we won those cases because those pieces of of that that were so important for the plaintiff to tell its case were excluded. What about style objections? And what I mean by that is you're not necessarily trying to keep out a piece of evidence that you view as critical to um, your adversary's case, but perhaps a direct has been particularly effective and ongoing without interruption, or you just haven't been heard by the judge for some time, or you ha the jury hasn't had an opportunity for, to hear you for some time. Do you, do you on occasion make an objection to sort of take back control or slow down the pace of whatever's taking place? Yeah, I mean, you have to do that sparingly because obviously an objection that doesn't have a good foundation for yourself can be swatted down by the judge and the jury can get the impression that, oh, these objections or this lawyer aren't trustworthy. So you have to be really careful in, in making those objections. But I've certainly made the kind that you've described where the direct, for example, 
has become so fluid that it's almost a conversation. And um, that's the kind of the worst thing that you you see on the other side, that uh, the plaintiff's lawyer is barely able, doesn't even need to ask a question. It begins to become a tale in itself. And you might stand up and object and say, this is narrative, Your Honor. We're not here to tell stories. We're here to have question and answer. And that breaks up the flow. It causes everybody to sort of take a step back. And if it's true, I mean, you'll actually often get an instruction from the judge that says, that's that's right, you know, Mr. Dujur is correct. Let's get back to question and answer, shall we? And now you've kind of broken up the flow of what was a, you know, sort of a narrative, a, a tale that's being told by that particular witness. That's important. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can, you know, remember and, and it's almost like I, I can remember exactly how I felt being there where I'm just getting crushed by a direct and you look at your trial partner and you're like, we got to do something uh, and you just make an objection, right? And um, whether or not it's well-founded, it can, you know, have the desired outcome that you were looking for. So, Mike, this has been great so far hearing your views on opening, closing, a little bit on cross and, and objections. But I'd like to hear a bit about how you came to hold and develop those views, your experience as a lawyer and trial lawyer in particular. Currently, you're, you're a partner in the Boston office of Foley. Tell us about your, your practice and how you came to have it. Sure. Well, I started in a large law firm in Boston as a civil litigator, but as is true today and and was true then, um, if you really wanted to get trial experience, it's hard to do that in a firm. And um, there was a pretty uh, well-worn path to the U.S. Attorney's Office in, in Boston, which I took after having a couple of trials, sometimes not as first chair, but I had observed them and then a couple of trials that I did myself. I was thrown into the deep water when I got to the U.S. Attorney's Office, which is actually the best possible thing. I I had been hired to join the organized crime strike force, but you can't go into that without getting a full background clearance from the FBI. So I was assigned to the major crimes unit. Uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston. And that meant bank robberies, it meant counterfeiting, it meant fraud, it meant a whole variety of reactive and and non-reactive crime. And it was an opportunity to have to deal with a whole bunch of things right on your feet. And that really, I think, was the place where I distilled from a lot of great teachers, a lot of great supervisors, uh, the ideas that I that I developed over time and having the opportunity to deal with um, those cases as they as they change in front of your eyes, I think, was the was a was the most important experience for my career. I came out of there uh, with an idea of being a white collar criminal defense lawyer. Um, As it happened, I managed through that to end up doing a a variety of False Claims Act cases. The Federal False Claims Act is a major major act that uh, allows people to bring cases purportedly on behalf of the United States, claiming that there has been fraud. And so I've handled a number of those cases. And then I ended up sort of moving into healthcare just almost by accident. And a lot of the work that I do is in healthcare, healthcare fraud and uh, within the last five or six years, one of my favorite things is helping institutions with scientific and research misconduct investigations, complicated areas. I was a scientist wannabe, so I get a little bit of science, I get a little bit of law, and the opportunity to help institutions with potential crime or fraud. So this has been really wonderful, Mike, to hear uh, your views on trying cases and, and a bit about your experience. And now, of course, I want to get some war stories from you. So why don't we start with your most memorable trial? Tell us about that. 
Well, I think the most memorable trial that I had was an organized crime trial. It went on for six weeks. It was a RICO trial. Uh, there were allegations that um, this was before a variety of gambling was legal in Massachusetts. And so gambling was done in a variety of different restaurants and coffee houses and parts of uh, the Boston area. And it was all enforced through organized crime enforcers. Uh, many of the people who were gambling or playing uh, the numbers and so forth would take out loans, which were then enforced through loan sharking. And we were involved in proving that there was a racketeering enterprise for, for six months, six weeks. And, and I think what was so memorable about it and why I, I think about it a lot was the way in which the nuggets came in together for the prosecution. We had a number of witnesses who weren't very happy to be there. They were afraid of the organized crime figures, but they also didn't want to go to jail for contempt. And so so they were they had to tell their story. So we had to we had to really tease it out of them. And part of that was showing how the enterprise, because that was really the necessary piece of the case, how the enterprise came together. And I can recall that with each of these various club owners or restaurant owners, one of the things we tried to do was we knew that the police were corrupt and that they were there would be telephone conversations between the police and these restaurants, but we didn't actually have wiretaps. And so what we were able to do, though, was to show through phone records and that as, but when, a, when a raid was supposed to happen, there was always a call a few minutes beforehand. How did we do that? Well, when each of these club owners took the stand, we asked them almost in passing, what's the phone number? at the club what's the what you know how do you how do you people reach you and you could see that the jury was a little confused they were maybe a little what's that and and actually by the time the the case went along they were getting ready for the telephone number call a uh, uh, question and that's where the closing really came together because we were thinking about it throughout and i'll never forget the look on the jury's face as the numbers got put up on a chart they really hadn't been sure about what we were trying to do and then it all came clear. And I don't think I have as much fun or, or enjoyment in any trial than watching the faces of the jury one by one, some were faster, some were slower, as they had that moment of revelation that that's what all makes sense. That's what brings this thing together. I am Agatha Christie. I figured it all out. And at that point, we knew we were going to get a guilty verdict because they understood. Uh, if I can get that look on a jury's face in any case, that gives me great joy because then I've, I've managed to bring them with me. Their story is my story and, and vice versa. And that was really a, a, a terrific, a terrific win. And now we're, we're full circle because this is exactly what you were talking about earlier when you were suggesting that you try to have the jury come along with you as detectives and arrive at the answer with you at closing. And and here, one of your most memorable trial experiences or most memorable trials is exactly that. I mean, that's, that's so, right. That's, that's right. So it's one great. of the reasons I really it, it does resonate uh, over the years. OK, so what about most memorable and maybe that that particular moment is it for you, but most memorable trial moment or experience? So the most memorable, I, when I think about that, I think about a case, uh, it was a bank robbery case. It was a challenging bank robbery case because the tellers in the bank, one was so traumatized that she couldn't testify. She just said, I, I can't get there. I, I, I won't, I won't do it. I can't do it. We couldn't make her, we could compel her, but it was clearly not useful. And the other teller said that she was so frightened, she couldn't identify the defendant. And the only evidence we really had, we had some poor video, and we had a cooperating witness 
who unfortunately cooperated because he had been he was being tried for murder in another case and agreed to a lesser sentence. We gave him a lesser sentence in return for his testimony. So it was a tough case to prove, but the bank robber had been a multiple times bank robber, and it was really important to um, to put him away. So on the morning of the trial, we were facing that situation without an, an ID. And uh, moments before the trial, the teller who was willing to testify, she was there with her husband and she ran over to me and said, it's him. It's him. I know it's him. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, the, the, a man walked in front of me going into that courtroom. And when I saw him in the bank, the only thing I had seen was his profile. But as he walked in front of me, I saw the same profile. That's him. I can testify that that's him. Well, this was obviously a new piece of news for all of us. Sure. And I went to the judge to tell him that this is something we were going to do. And the defense had a huge outcry because they had understood there wouldn't be an identification. They had the testimony from that witness. And the judge very calmly said, well, you can cross-examine. Uh, <laughs> go ahead. Put that on. And we did put that on, and the, the witness in, in tears, uh, just you know, sobbing on the stand, said, that's him, I saw him, I know him, and pointed at the defendant. The second part of that trial, which was really quite remarkable, was that the, defendant, the defense felt that they then had no choice but to put the defendant on the stand. Again, I question whether that was really the right decision, <laughs> but they do put the defendant on the stand. And he had been convicted of manslaughter in a case in Massachusetts, and we were able to use the the transcripts from that case during the cross-examination, including the fact that he had pointed a gun directly at a victim who had begged him not to shoot. And I said, and then you shot him, didn't you? Long pause. Yes, I did. Um, didn't kill him, but shot him. I don't think I've ever had a more a greater opportunity to cross-examine somebody than I did with uh, a defendant with a long track record, including shooting somebody. So that was a memorable trial, and he was sentenced uh, to 22 years by one of the most defendant-prone judges in our system. So that, that uh. was fun and very rewarding. And when you were directing the ID witness, presumably you had to go through – uh, you know, it, it wasn't until right now when you saw the profile that you realized this was him. That's exactly what I had to do. And and the defense had a real challenge because the argument that they had made was that he had been brought in front of her in manacles because he was a dangerous sure. uh, defendant. And that that was what the witness had seen. And of course, you know, again, we're often told, don't ask any question you don't know the answer to when you're on cross-examination, but they really had no choice. This is all new information. So they had to be careful about saying, well, he was brought in in manacles, not something that they want the jury to hear. In front of the jury, sure. In front of the jury. But they then did have to go there. And the the witness, to her credit and to the and, and to credit to the story, she looked dumbfounded and said, I don't know what you mean. What what are you talking about? Um you know, what what chains, what what handcuffs. And that sort of took the wind out of that that sale and uh, and helped us uh, in, in making the uh, the ID. Wow, that's that's a great story. So, you know, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you what your first trial experience was. 
if you can remember. I, I do. I do. My first trial was in an odd place. It was in the appellate tax board of Massachusetts, and uh, I was representing a town um, that was trying to uh, uh, to um, get taxes out of a person who didn't want to follow the rules and, 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 and get a conservation easement. They just wanted the town to go away. Um, her the lawyer that she had selected was actually not a lawyer. He was a first-year law student who was the brother of a famous actor who I won't mention. Um, and the very first act, it does kind of go to some of the themes we were talking about, was that I moved to exclude this person who she was dating but not married to and so forth, said he's a first-year lawyer, a first-year law student, excuse me. Um, he can't be a lawyer. And the appellate tax board thought about it a little bit and said, that's right. They can't. <laughs> and so then the then this the defendant was essentially pro se, as we say, she was by herself. And that made a big difference in the case. <laughs> it went really fast and we won. But it did demonstrate again that, you know, this is that room that you're in and the information that comes in is only that which is permissible. And by removing this person who Again, wasn't going to be a real lawyer anyway, but thought of himself as one. Changed the dynamic in the room and ended up changing the trial. Well, that's certainly a memorable first trial experience. Thanks so much for sharing these these great trial stories. I like to ask podcast guests um, for a lesson or lessons from their years of trial practice that they would tell themselves when they were a younger lawyer, say, before their first trial. What lesson or lessons would you tell yourself? So I think that what I've learned over the years is that because the trial is this special place, there's such a tendency as a junior lawyer to try to do too much. Streamline your case. What's important? What's going to tell your story the best way? I've seen so many cases that were overtried, overcharged, over whatever, with too much paper and too many extraneous stories. I wish I had kind of understood that at the beginning, because it's really critical to cut, 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 and get down to what's really important. And um, I think you win cases by keeping them thematic and simple and straightforward and you don't you push out the extraneous stuff into the outside your your box and if the other side wants to do it object to it but let them tell their complex tale that ultimately becomes too complicated for the jury to understand simplify that's the key i think that's great advice and i wonder if that informs the way you litigate cases including through discovery before summary judgment and trial you know absolutely think that we were trained unfortunately um that you know these depositions that you take in a civil case they go on all day i need another day every little issue is is explored and that's not to say that we shouldn't use them for discovery we sometimes learn things that we wouldn't otherwise know but ultimately what you really want to know is what's going to help you in trial and, and frankly, summary judgment, too. You, 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 most cases don't try. So, uh, so you need to get those nuggets, again, that are going to give you the answers um, for summary judgment. Um, so it really does uh, I- impact that. 
But I think that one of the things that comes from having trial experience is that you think about discovery differently than you do. You think about it in terms of how is this case going to go to trial? One of the things that I teach junior lawyers within our firm is that I think all too often we're trained in depositions. If this is our witness we're presenting, don't ask any questions because all that will do is to create impeachment material and they'll learn new things and just let them ask questions and then we'll have them for later as an affidavit or a trial, especially with cases now going on so long in terms of getting them ready for trial. Those witnesses may not be there when you need them or, uh, you know, they're either unavailable or they've just forgotten what the case is about. So when I take depositions, I make sure that at the end of the case and recognizing that there is a risk in doing so, I put together 20 minutes of the key elements of what I'm going to need from that witness. So that if that witness leaves that day and is hit by a bus or moves to Hong Kong or has dementia or whatever, I will have those 20 minutes, ideally on video, so that I can take them to trial. And I think that's just critical aspect of discovery that comes from being a trial lawyer, because otherwise, how am I going to get that witness's evidence in? It's gone. I don't want to have to put it in through their questions and answers, which are going to be jumbled and are going to be helpful to the other side. I want it for me. I want those 20 minutes. And that, I think, has really have been impacted by, by doing the trials you know, that I've done. Well, I think, that's, I think that's great advice, and I think you've offered some great lessons. So, listen, thanks so much for joining me, Mike. I really appreciate your time and insights. It's really been a pleasure talking to you, Chris. Thanks very much. Mike was the first podcast guest to talk at length about closing argument, how and when it can be more important than the opening, and how to use it to tell your client's story effectively. And I especially like how Mike tries to make jurors feel as though they are detectives, along with him, arriving at the conclusions he wants them to adopt, but on their own, in view of the evidentiary seeds and themes strategically planted throughout trial. Mike also aptly described the courtroom as a sterile box into which jurors step without any familiarity with the facts or issues of a given case, and why, therefore, objections are so important in helping to frame the evidence and keep from the jury evidence which does not belong in the courtroom. Mike also offered his view on the most important skill of a trial lawyer, being resilient. And of course, he shared some really incredible trial war stories, including the aha moment from closing argument during an organized crime trial and another incredible in-court ID. It's clear that Mike is a passionate trial lawyer who loves trying cases, and it was a pleasure to have him on the podcast. Please tune in next time for another interesting discussion on the art of trial with another seasoned trial lawyer. Thank you for listening to this production from Foley and Lardner, LLP. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and is intended as a general overview. The podcast does not constitute legal advice nor solicitation to provide legal services. It's not meant to convey a legal position of Foley and Lardner, LLP, on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. Any opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the firm, its partners, or its clients. The podcast is not intended to create 
and listening to the podcast does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The listener should not act upon this information without seeking counsel from a licensed attorney. Foley makes no representations or warranties of any kind, expressed or implied, as to the content of the podcast or to its accuracy or completeness, and accepts no responsibility for an individual who acts or refrains from acting based on information obtained from the podcast. In some jurisdictions, the contents of this podcast may be considered attorney advertising. If applicable, please note that prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.